Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Have you ever looked around yourself and wondered, how the heck did we get where we are today? How did we get to living in a country where boys can become girls and girls can become boys? How we live in a country that has murdered tens of millions of our children? How we started out in a country founded on Christianity and Christian principles like liberty and decentralization, but now live in a country with a centralized, tyrannical government? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today on episode 92 of the Liberty Cafe. Thank you for being with me here today. I'm Bill Peacock, and it's always a blessing to have you here as part of the Liberty Cafe. And of course, it's always a blessing to work with uh, the men and women over at Texas Scorecard, the sponsor of the Liberty Cafe, a great group of people doing great things for your liberty and mine. So head on over to texasscorecard.com and find out what we're doing over there. Well, today I want us to think about how we got to where we are today, that the mess we are in around us, that we could even have a man like Joe Biden as president of the United States, much less a party that totally denies that God exists in their lives and in their views of government, and even how conservatives do that as well sometimes, or even the church pretend like what God says doesn't really count when it comes to how we organize our government and things like that. So I kind of want us to walk through this and, and just see how we've gone from a, like I said at the beginning, a country focused on liberty and freedom under God to a place where all that is collapsing around us today. Now, of course, we could go way, way, way back to the Garden of Eden and talk about Adam and Eve and Eve eating the apple and those types of things, or even more importantly, Adam allowing Eve to eat the apple rather than protecting her from Satan and educating her and teaching her and discipling her before Satan even showed up with the apple. But we're not going to go back that far. But what I'd like to do is go back to the founding of this country and and talk today about the the collapse of the constitutional order. And we're going to do this in two parts. We're going to start back in around the time of 1776, the founding of our country. And we're going to go through from that time through the 19th century into what we call the progressive era, and that'll get us up to about the end of World War II or a little bit before that, actually. And then we'll come back and with the 1950s and what we might call the modern era at, uh, in part two next week. So let's first then think about what is the constitutional order? What, is, what did we have in the structure and the founding of our government that we don't have anymore? Well, there's several things that went into the founding of our government, the structure of our government, that the the founding fathers put together. I I know founding fathers is a patriarchal term, but I I think, you know, it applies pretty well. It's a bunch of guys in the room who came up with this, a bunch of guys usually out in the field fighting the enemy. Women, of course, were a big part of this as well, 
but, but not in the structural part of putting together our, con- our country. So we're going to just stick with the founding father's turn. So what, what did they do? Well, they, they put in several pillars, you might say, that, that they thought were going to guarantee our liberties. As they turned out, it, it didn't work so well. Some of that is structural. Some, the Constitution wasn't as good as it might have been. But part of it, of course, is just that we live in a fallen world, and no matter what kind of structures we put in around us, we're going to have problems because we are, have rebelled against God. And most people, I think, in the United States still haven't repented of that and come back to it. And even those of us who have, Christians, are st- still struggle with doing what God wants us to do. So let's look at those constitutional pillars that the founders put into place. One is federalism. And, and that's an easy concept. We have a federal government, a, a national government, if you will, and state government. And, and this was a sh- power-sharing arrangement. The national government or the federal government had certain authorities in the U.S. Constitution, and then the state governments had certain authority, too. Most famously, in, in the Tenth Amendment, were the powers not given— specifically given to the to the federal government were reserved for the states and this is important or to the people so that that was one of the things federalism and another thing was separation of powers right so we had this situation where we had a federal government but it was structured in, in such a way that the power wasn't all in one place you had the executive branch where the president is you had the legislative branch where congress is and then the judicial branch where the courts are so that was the second structure that was put into place to help protect us from tyranny third was bicameralism and and that's simply that we have two legislative bodies in the legislative branch we have the senate and we have the house and they were put into place to to separate power even within the legislative branch and to protect against just democracy the founders were very skeptical of democracy, and so they put this uh, Senate into place where states, even small states, had just as much representation, two senators, as the big states, unlike the House of Representatives, which was based on population. And then there was a fourth pillar, constitutional pillar, put into place, which was the, the concept of enumerated powers. The idea that the federal government could only do what the Constitution said it could do, and it gave it specific powers what it could do. Congress can do this. The executive branch can do that. The judiciary can do this. And that's all they can do. And there were some also limits in there. And then there's also powers given to the states. So this concept of enumerated powers. So, so those were the four main pillars that our founders put into place. Why, why did they do that? Well, they did it because they wanted to prevent the consolidation of power. Of course, they had just seen the consolidation of power assaulting them from England. And but it, it in, you know, the Declaration of Independence was aimed at George III, who didn't protect them 
didn't live up to his obligations and then sent armies and things like that. But really the problem that they saw was the consolidation of power over there was a consolidation of parliament. That parliament had taken over everything and parliament was telling them what to do despite the fact that parliament had no authority over them. It was King George who had authority over them, not parliament. And so they had seen this, and of course they'd seen it also recently in, in countries around Europe where, where kings were consolidating power and being absolute monarchs and tyrants and those types of things. And then they were well-read. They had seen it throughout history. But as much as they had seen it in person, they also understand it from a intellectual and moral level. The, uh, the founders were particularly influenced by Augustine. And maybe they hadn't read as much of his things, but, but his writings had just spread throughout Western culture, and particularly Augustine's teaching about moral depravity and original sin, how people are fallen because they fell in rebellion against God, and they can do no good on their own. Right? Any good they do only comes from the power of Jesus Christ working in them. But most people who are not in repentance don't even seek to have that. God may have them do some good things through common grace, but generally men fall towards bad things. And so they understood that, and so they didn't want consolidated power even in one person or one collective group of people because of this really strong understanding of original sin and moral depravity in men. They, they were also, so that, that was one aspect of the founding pillars of our country. The, the other one was simply that most of the founders understood that government is a gift from God, that government was ordained by God, and that it required a public acknowledgement of that and a private practice of that. We can see that in John Adams' comment that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Of course, Benjamin Franklin famously said when he was asked what kind of government we were given when he walked out of the convention hall in Philadelphia, a republic if you can keep it. So even somebody like Benjamin Franklin, who wasn't a Christian, most likely, understood that only a moral and religious people, only a Christian people, actually, because that's the only kind of moral and religious people you can have in this world are Christian people, because they're the only ones that have the power of Christ working in them. As Paul says, no one does good, not one. That's the Apostle Paul in Romans. And, and that is true. And the only opportunity for anyone to do good is in Jesus Christ. And so there was, even if they didn't have a, all of them didn't have a full-blown understanding of this concept of covenant under God, that a government is founded under God because he is the head of the government, they still saw this as a general concept and knew that this was important. And so they created a government that had the structures where God was sovereign over it. Now, we'll look in just a minute to see that 
there were some problems, some cracks already coming in that. But, but that's the general concept of our government, that it was a government under God, and it was a government that had certain institutional pillars put into it to keep that government under God and keep it from falling into a government that just looked to man. So that's where we started out in this country. And so I've taken a little while to get that going, but, but I think it was worthwhile to kind of set the, set the stage for this. So we can look at the decline of the constitutional order in three parts, four parts really. But first there were some cracks in the U.S. Constitution, and we're going to look at that in just a second. Secondly, there was the decline or the collapse of the constitutional order in three stages past that. First in the 19th century, leading up to the Civil War, and then after the Civil War. Then in the progressive area, that takes really about you know, the uh, 1890s, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and that kind of thing, all the way through his cousin, nephew, I can't remember which one it was, um, Franklin Roosevelt, up until the World War II. And then we get to the 1950s, which is the we would call here the modern era. So that, that's what we're going to look at and see how the, this constitutional order that was put in place to protect our liberties and keep us focused as a government under God collapsed. So let's just take one quick look at some of the uh, two of the main faults with the, with the Constitution. There are numerous ones. Remember, the, the Constitution was written by people who were called to Philadelphia to simply improve the Articles of Confederation. The, the the people of the United States, even the governments of the United States, the, the United States being each individual 13 states, they, they, they knew some there were some problems with the Articles of Confederation, but they didn't want to abolish them or abandon them. They wanted to improve them. But the people who came, particularly people like Madison and uh, Hamilton and even George Washington, really felt like we just needed to start from scratch. And, and we could debate whether or not that was a good thing or not. I think there were some things that needed improving, though. And so that's what they did. They came together to do that. Well, the, the, the first thing you can see that is wrong with the Constitution is simply the fact that it starts with we the people. Uh, uh, that it was, that they saw that this government was a contract between the government and the people. As I talked about, the, rid the origins of our government in this country were built on the understanding that it was a contract between, government was a contract between the people and God. And you can go back to the Mayflower Compact, which is the first governmental document written on American shores. Actually, I think it was written on the way over perhaps by the pilgrims before they landed here in up in Plymouth at Plymouth Rock but they started out their governmental document in the in the name with God in the name of God it started out in the name of God and because their focus was on God as the sovereign ruler of, of all things well that that started seeing some cracks and, and this we the people thing really came out of this concept of social contract theory and we won't get too far off into that. But basically, people like Hobbes and Locke 
who neither one were probably Christians, but were very steeped in Reformation uh, theology and and Protestant theology, they started taking this idea of covenant with God and turning it away from the Christian perspective on that into this social contract theory where people join in contract together and create a government. And that's the covenant right there rather than this covenant with God. So there, there's just one problem. The structure of the government still pointed towards God in many ways, but it, the mindset had already shifted a little bit, even though the people who were writing this document were Christian. So don't let people tell you that the foundations of our country and even the founding of our government and the Constitution weren't Christian. They were, but some of the Christians at this point in time were getting confused. And, and that led to pro- that's led to problems today because we don't see it's very difficult to bring God's word into the public debate about what our government should look like. That that crack really started back with the words "We the people." Second, the second problem with the Constitution, I would say, I mean there are others, but these are the two big ones I think, is the necessary and proper clause. The necessary and proper clause was simply put into the Constitution after, in Article One, which is the article that talks about Congress, and it enumerates all the powers of Congress, what Congress can do. And remember, this is a document of enumerated powers, so if the Constitution doesn't say that Congress can do something, it can't do that. But, of course, what happened was there were some people who wanted Congress to be able to do more than the Constitution said it could do. And so, and, and this was a big fight between the, the Federalists who wanted a federal national government with a lot of powers and, who, and those who became called the Anti-Federalists who did not want that type of government. They wanted more power in the states, more like it had been under the Articles of Confederation. And so in the U.S. Constitutional Convention, the Anti-Federalists lost, the Federalists won. And so one of the things they did to make that their victory complete was to put in the Necessary and Proper Clause. So let me just read this. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution is where it lays out the powers of Congress, and it begins with the Congress shall have power to, and then we get down to, I think it's uh, section 18, which is a necessary and proper clause. So if we read in that original line with this section right here, this is what we get. The Congress shall have the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper, there we get the necessary and proper clause, for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. And so there we have this big, giant loophole, you might say, that gives Congress the power to say, oh, well, we have to do this under the Constitution, which means we really need to do that. And so that was a problem, and we're going to start looking at that well, right now, as a matter of fact, as we get into the uh, decline of the constitutional order. So we're going to start off with the 19th century, 
And we're just going to look at this, this issue of enumerated powers today. And then after that, we'll come back with the second part of the 19th century after the Civil War, which is a whole nother basket of problems, and then move on into the, uh, the modern, the 20th century and the 21st century after that. So right after the Constitution was adopted almost in the administration of George Washington, we get our first big debate over what the necessary and proper clause mean, means. Because Alexander Hamilton wanted to start a bank of the United States because, well, Alexander Hamilton was a businessman. He was a lot of commercial interest, and that was his interest. And he wanted to be able to have the government print money, control money, and move it around the country so that his commercial interest, banking and all those other things, could benefit from that. Well, the Constitution says nothing about the U.S. Congress having the power to have a bank. It does say that they can print money and pay debts. Well, Hamilton came up with the idea that, well, if we have to, if we print money and we have to pay debts, well, obviously the, the government needs a bank. It is necessary and proper for the United States government to have a bank in order to do these things that the Constitution has told us we can do. So he got a bill uh, introduced into Congress. At this time, I think he was Secretary of the Treasury in the Washington administration. And, and so he got a bill introduced over in Congress, and, and it passed. And then there was a debate in the Washington administration what to do with that. Should we sign it? Should Washington sign it because it's, it's constitutional and important and needed? Or should he veto it because it, it violates the Constitution? Well, there, this debate developed between um, Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, who was also, what was he, Secretary of State, perhaps, in the, in the uh, Washington administration. And then also, interestingly enough, James Madison, who, who was a Federalist. Thomas Jefferson would have been an anti-Federalist. Madison was actually a Federalist. He liked the big national government, but he thought that the Bank of the United States went too far. This first bank of the United States went too far. It was not something that fell within the necessary and proper clause. And so there was this big debate within the Washington administration and in Congress. But Hamilton finally won, and George Washington signed the bill. And so we had our first big test of the enumerated powers concept of the, the federal U.S. Constitution, and it failed because of this necessary and proper clause. Not saying that it wouldn't have failed otherwise, but this made it very convenient. There was, there was no court battles over this, but a few years later, uh, the... I think back in the in the in the uh, forward into the administration of James Madison, Congress passed a new bank. I guess the first bank of the National Bank of the United States had expired, and so Congress passed a new law, which created the second National Bank of the United States. And James, it's interesting, James Madison, who had opposed it in the Washington administration, was now president, and he signed the bill. And he said a lot of things about why he had changed his mind, but I think ultimately he signed it because he liked big government, he liked the big centralized government, 
And so he signed the bill, and it became law. Well, this became a court fight, because unlike the original First Bank of the United States, the, the state of Maryland and others, but the state of Maryland in particular, took exception to this and sought to tax the Second Bank of the United States. And so the Supreme Court had to decide, first of all, well, it had to decide whether the estate could tax something that the federal government was doing. But before it got to that, it had to decide whether or not the Second Bank of the United States was constitutional. And so that's what it did. And and in McCulloch versus Maryland, the Supreme Court acknowledged the concept of enumerated powers. And let me just read the quote from there. This government is acknowledged by all to be one of enumerated powers. The principle that it can exercise only the powers granted to it is now universally admitted. But the question respecting the extent of the powers actually granted is perpetually arising and will probably continue to arise as long as our system shall exist. Well, isn't that just what we're doing today? That the Supreme Court of the United States is constantly deciding what the federal government can do or can't do. Can it ban abortion? Can it not ban abortion? Can it tell states that gay people have to get married or they can't get married? Can it tell states what what they can do to regulate, well, let's say, the growth of agriculture within their state or the sale of guns within their state? All these kinds of things are what the federal government is doing today in the courts as well. And you can see how this all began back as early as the founding of our country in the, this first debate over the enumerated powers. So what the court finally did was say, well, sure, even though it doesn't say in the Constitution that the United States can charter a bank, we think that is something they can do under the Necessary and Proper Clause. And let me read the quote on this. This provision, and they're talking about the Necessary and Proper Clause, is made in a Constitution intended to endure for ages to come, and consequently to be adapted to the various crises of human affairs, to have prescribed the means by which the government should in all future time execute its powers would have been an unwise attempt to provide for exigencies, which, if foreseen at all, must have been dimly seen and which can be best provided for as they occur. So again, we see this concept. This is the living constitution. It's a living and breathing concept, and they couldn't have seen the fact that that men might want to become boys, I mean girls, or girls might want to become boys. And so we, we need to allow the Supreme Court to, the Constitution to grow. And, and so th- this was back in this very allegedly conservative time period, and they saw that the Constitution needed to be living and breathing and changing, denying the fact, really, that God's Word is eternal, and a founding government document written in light of God's Word would, just like God's Word does, foresee all issues that would come up in the future and provide a framework to deal deal with it. We, we don't need people 
coming in and telling us and, and looking at the Constitution and just making up new penumbras and rights and all those kinds of things. So at this point in time, the Necessary and Proper Clause was deemed to allow the federal government to do just about whatever they wanted it to, and it actually got worse. They actually used the language in later cases that basically necessary meant convenient, and so it became the uh, Convenient and Proper Clause, and and it's just gone on from there, the interpretation of the Constitution. Well, that, that was the first big breach of the constitutional order. Now, fortunately, a few years later, Andrew Jackson came along and vetoed the extension of the Second Bank of the United States, and it went away. So that one problem was solved, but the, the bigger problem was still there in the Necessary and Proper Clause. So, so that's what we're going to end on today, is how the constitutional order was already in decline at the very beginning of the implementation of the constitutional order and the Necessary and Proper Clause, and the fact that some people wanted to take away the concept that government is under God and it's just a contract between people, and so we can basically make government say and do whatever we want it to do, regardless of what God says about it. Thank you very much for being here at the Liberty Cafe and joining us on episode 92. Uh, we'll be back next week to do part two of the collapse of the constitutional order. And we'll also be back with our sponsors of the Liberty Cafe, Texas Scorecard. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate this show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.